Blog Talk Radio. Archangels, Ghosts, and Bigfoot, oh my. It's just another night for Supernatural Girls. Real stories, real answers to life's biggest supernatural mysteries. And now, for another exciting interview with paranormal experts from this world and others. Here's your host, paranormal researcher Patricia Baker, on the one, the only, Supernatural Girls. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker, and I am here as a solo host tonight because our dear co-host, Patricia Kirkman, Miss PK, is in the hospital. So we're hoping that she'll be released fairly soon, um, but I know all of you look forward to hearing from her every week. And so please take a minute to send her a prayer of healing. I know she really appreciates that. And she certainly is going to miss being here for the most exciting show with our guest, Don Webb. And I'm going to bring him on in just a few minutes. But first I wanted to remind everybody, if you didn't get a chance to listen to our last show with Kristen Grace McGarry, I highly recommend you take a listen to it. Now, she is the author of Know Your Blood, Know Your Health. And we talked a lot about the possibilities of diagnosis, and we're talking really early diagnosis, with the type of functional blood analysis that she is an expert in. So if you didn't hear it and you're interested in your health, definitely take a listen. It's in the archives. It's there waiting for you. She was a great guest, and she gave us a ton of really good information. So for Grab-A-Boy numbers tonight, I've been handing out numbers every week, and here's another set of numbers we're going to give you, I'm going to give you, because one of them is about money in the bank, which you've been asking for that one, and the other one is fast health recovery. So let me give you the first one, money in the bank, and that is Three one nine six one eight seven one nine eight one four. Again, that's three one nine one eight seven one nine eight one four. That's for money in the bank. And again, what you do with these, if you didn't hear the last few shows where we've talked about it. You take a number like this, you write it down, put it underneath your pillow, put it in your wallet, meditate on it. When you catch your mind running away with negative thoughts, think this number instead. And we're getting all kinds, both PK and I have heard from lots and lots of our audience members who have had great results just with playing with these numbers. So feel free to use that one, money in the bank. Fast health recovery is one nine seven five one. Again, that's one nine seven five one. And I'm giving that one 
to PK tonight so she can use that for her fast health recovery. That number is 19751. So also be sure to go to our Facebook page. We have lots of great stories there again. More UFO reports. It seems like they are just exponentially increasing. And we've also seen an increase in people reporting and seeing cryptids. I'm going to be posting a video for you that has this type of a strange-looking crab thing with a human face walking down the street. And it's bizarre, but it is on a CCTV camera, security camera. So I'm going to post that later tonight. Be sure to take a look. Things are getting weird, everybody. So I also, tonight, I'm just so excited to have our guest on, Don Webb. And we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, which is vampires. Now, I am the ultimate teenager, I have to say. I loved Buffy the Vampire Slayer, my favorite series of all time. I really hope they'll come back together and do a movie it, it was great. It was just great. And also I'm a fan of Emily Bax. She's a tremendous writer. She writes fiction, and she has a vampire book series that's like modern-day Game of Thrones meets adult Twilight, the Medici Warrior series. Now, I think this should be a television series. I really do, because it's a great, great Story. And she has multiple books in the series, so if you haven't read them, you are missing out. So make sure that you look up Emily Beck's and her incredible vampire book series, all fiction, wonderful stories, extremely well written. So, again, it's, they're just great. But tonight, we have a very special man with us, Don Webb. Now, he joined the Temple of Set in 1989, and he served as its high priest from 1996 to 2002. And he's written many articles on Sishan practice, I hope I'm saying that right, in specific and left-hand path thought generally, including Uncle Setnak's Essential Guide to the Left-Hand Path, Mysteries of the Temple of Set, Overthrowing Old Gods, Aleister Crowley and the Book of the Law, The Seven Faces of Darkness, and Uncle Setnak's Nightbook. Now, he is well-published as a writer of horror, science fiction, and mysteries and has taught creative writing for UCLA Extension since 2002. And he is the author of a fabulous book called Energy Magic of the Vampire, and we're going to hear all about this tonight. So, Don, welcome to the show. Well, I'm so glad to be here. I love your show, and I'm really glad you are having me as a guest. Well, it's it's my honor, really. I, you're such a fabulous writer, and I look back in our our history, and it's been a while since you've been on. So we're thrill- I'm thrilled to have you back here. And your book is amazing. Now, how did you pick that topic? Well, I, I picked it for a couple of reasons. Um, as you are well aware, there is a huge need in the world right now for people to directly address their energetic concerns. And, of yeah. course, Energy Magic of the Vampire is about the, how the average human, whatever that may, whatever he or she may be, can go and get energy from their fellow humans, from the natural world, from art, because there's a huge need for energy. And there's a huge need not to give up your energy when you don't want to. 
mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of things that prey upon people now. The Temple of Set is usually extraordinarily secretive. The uh, Order of the Vampire, of which I'm a master, uh, has traditionally not you know, said anything like, no, you come in, we're going to give you some secrets now, or let you earn some secrets, I guess would be a better phrase. But what has happened in the last few years, some of our members have left, they've gone out, they formed their own groups, and there's a lot of sort of watered-down versions of um, some really good thought. And so it's the time, uh, for various reasons, one might speak even as magically an important time, to go out and give um, better information to people that uh, want to play with better tools. Well, I'm all for it. And what I love about your book is the way you talk about this in terms of our freedom. And we have choices that we can make and how we manage our own energy and or how we don't. So so this is I think a very timely topic given that there are there are appearances of these forces that be that forces the powers that be, I should say, in the world today that don't seem to want us to have freedom. So this is a great time to talk about this. Well, humanity is at kind of a crossroads now because um, there's an awful lot of us on the planet. There's 8 billion people. And in a time of scarce resources, if resources are not handled well, in a time when um, we have new diseases, new pollutants, um, a lot of new sort of bad things going on, but we also, this is a time of tremendous opportunity and power. Um, so humanity needs to be sort of nudged one way or another. Now, the magician doesn't try and the vampire doesn't try to rule society. We're not going to go out and say, all right, here's our religion, you know, buy our book, do this. Our secret is, of course, to get power over ourselves. But if enough portion of society had a stronger amount of power over themselves, was a little bit more awakened about what's going on in them and around them, the world could change rapidly in a very good way. It could, and and that would be a, a wonderful thing. Now, you were introduced to the Order of the Vampire many years ago. How did that come about? Well, I um, after I had joined the Temple of Set, and I can tell tell you that that story also if you wish it some later yes, tonight. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, all right. I'll I'll start with that story. I'll start how I got okay. in the temple, and then Great. how I got into the OB. Uh, all of my life, I'd had a strong interest in the occult in many of its manifestations. However, I kept having the same problem. I would meet people who claimed to be practicing occultists, and usually they were, um, you know few tacos short of a combination plate. In fact, I worried about myself. Why am I interested in this thing that everyone else I see that's interested is, um, you know, kind of damaged or not a good rational thinker or make really bad decisions with money or health? Mm. So I had decided um, in my mid-30s, I'm just not going to do that anymore. It was interesting for a while. But look at where it takes people. All right. The occult has left my life. I am a new writer of science fiction and horror, and I received this wonderful invitation to write 
for an anthology that was going to come, didn't happen, but was going to come out in 1992, which would have been the 300th anniversary of the Salem Witch Trials. And this guy had called me up and he said, hey, would you like to write this book? And I said, yeah. And he said, what do you know about the Salem Witch Trials? I said, sir, I am an expert. Of course, that meant I didn't know anything, but (laughs) I wanted to get the gig, right? So I went and got a plethora of books on the topic and I researched them. And one day I was uh, made, made for myself a timeline of the hysteria of the Salem Witch Trials. At, at what point um, did they start accusing uh, large numbers of society? When did they say dreams were valid evidence in court? All of the, the steps. And I wrote this down because I thought I'm going to keep this, this timeline where I can watch it, see it. Because when I write, I like a lot of visual things around me, uh, sort of to steer my fiction um, because invoca- you know, imagination must be invoked. Yes. After I had finished this, I laid my timeline down. It was about 8 o'clock in the evening. I thought, I've been a good boy today. I'm going to watch some TV. And I turned on the TV, and it was Geraldo Rivera's Satanism in America special. Oh. And it, the intro into the uh, show had these great swirling figures of the Baphomet from the book um, Key of Black Magic, and which later in Tom said he invented. But anyway, I recognized the earlier source. Mm-hmm. And then I started listening to this show. And it was several occult experts whom Geraldo had gathered together who were warning America about the great dangers of Satanism. And as they talked, I noticed all the things I had on the Salem Witch Trial timeline were showing up. I got out a pen. I started doing little check marks by them. And finally, we reached this point toward the end of the show where this immensely large investigator named Tom Wedge, this guy had to weigh about 400 pounds on the hoof, said, Geraldo, I know where all the Satanists in America are. I know what their crimes are. I know where they buried the bodies. And at that point, this kind of odd-looking guy that was seating on the other side of the uh, speakers said, well, then as a law enforcement officer, why are you not arresting them? Yeah. And I thought, God, it's such a wonderful question, right? Let's, let's actually apply a little critical thinking right now. Immediately, Geraldo cuts to commercial. Oh, the next, and, but I, I watched on to finally get this guy's name. It was Colonel Michael Aquino. I'm like, oh, okay. That's an unusual name, kind of an unusual-looking guy. got weird eyebrows and stuff. <laughs> uh, the next night, I was at a friend's party, and I started talking. I said, you know, I've never in my life written a fan letter to someone on TV. But if I knew how to write to that Aquino guy, I would say I loved watching him shut up Geraldo Rivera. It was one of the best moments on television. Well, one of the women at the party gave me the just deepest sort of stink eye look. And I thought, oh, my God, I've offended her. I've in some way you know, crossed some barrier I didn't know she had. At the end of the party, she walks up to me and she says, uh, you need to drive me home. And I thought, okay. So I'm driving her home. Expecting to, you know, be 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 lectured on the danger of saying something appreciative about someone who was a self-described Satanist, and she turned to me and she said, "Do you really want to write a letter to Doctor Aquino?" Well, I noticed the word "doctor" coming up, which was like mm. no one had used that word. Yeah. I thought, okay. 
And I said, yeah, I, I would. She said, well, I'm seeing him next week at the International Conclave of the Temple of Set in Toronto. I could take it to him. Wow. And I looked at her and I thought, hey, you have a really good job. You have a nice house. You do not act crazy in any way. You are learned. Your husband has a Ph.D. and teaches at the University of Texas. You are not like any occultist I've ever seen. So I said, oh, yeah, I'll I'll write a letter. So I wrote a letter off to this Aquino guy. But Mm -hmm. to sort of distance myself from it, at the very end, I said, I've looked at the Temple of Set, and I don't understand how it can help an individual become more strong. You know, that's too much of a paradox for me. Right. Well, I got back a letter, you know, a couple months later. A very nice, you know, thank you for your kind words sort of letter. And at the end, uh, this guy wrote saying, we're also confused by the paradox of how can a group aid individuality. Maybe you should join and explain it to us. Oh. Which I thought was the biggest smart-ass answer I've ever seen. <laughs> so I put, I put the letter aside, and I kept thinking more and more, both about the paradox and the way this guy um, – this was his proselytizing, you know, this one tossed-off remark at the end. So right. I joined. <laughs> and um, seven years later, I was their high priest. So apparently I learned something along the way. And apparently you were able now, to explain something, too. Good for you. Well, that's one of the reasons why um, I've done a lot of, of writing. I mean, I'm one of those people that a good way for me to Obtain knowledge is to write about it or teach it because you have to structure it in your mind well enough to pass it off to another human. You usually have a pretty good handle on it. Right. You have to. Now, when I joined the the temple, there's in the temple, there are what are called orders. The temple has a, a university structure. You come in, you learn the basics, which is the first degree. Then you find an order. Orders have specific magical aesthetics, philosophy, techniques. And about the time I was order shopping, as they say, a friend of mine who since left the temple gave me this less than useful advice. He said, all the smart people join the order of the trapezoid. And all the people that are really good looking and just want to stand around and be good looking join the order of the vampire. Well, no one has described me as good-looking or standing around wanting to be good-looking. So I went after the order of the trapezoid. Now, when I finally met my first member of the order of the vampire, she was, in fact, stunningly good-looking. So much so, she had posed for Penthouse. I'm like, yep, you got the whole good-looking thing going on there. But then um, she was getting a degree in biochemistry. And I'm like, wow, that didn't really match the uh, not-too-smart part. Right. But anyway, I, I thought the OV was mainly about a very high level of glamour that I did not have. Uh, as I proceeded on through the temple, eventually the Grand Master of the Order of the Vampire said, you know, you're really one of us. You know more about energy manipulation than pretty much anyone I know in the temple. And I said, well, that's a tremendous compliment coming from you. So I joined and uh, later became, was recognized as a master of the order, meaning that I know the art so well, I can create new things in that order. And so that was sort of my path from 
giving up the occult entirely to becoming a master in a slightly unusual esoteric order. Yeah. And if you could just dispel some of the fear around it, because people have a lot of fear around this, and they think of it as evil, but it isn't. It's something entirely different. So maybe you could illuminate people with that. Well, I'll start with the the grosser points and move to the finer ones. Number one, we are not blood drinkers. We're not we're not we're not sipping off the, the local blood bank or biting each other. Uh, the people who do this miss the point. Blood is a symbol of energy. Uh-huh. It has always been a symbol of energy. Um, and using something using a physical something, you know, a, a an actual substance to try to transcend the natural world is not gonna get you anywhere. You can't grab your shoes and yank yourself up off the ground. You have to deal with something that's already not part of the natural world. Now, all humans have this quality called energy. And everyone is aware of it. Everyone feels it. Everyone knows when it's flowing through them. Everyone knows when it's low. Everyone knows what it looks like outside of themselves. Yet, it is not a simple thing from the natural world. It's not just um, sexual attraction. It's not just the thrill you see looking at certain pieces of great art. It's not just that wonderful feel, feeling you have at certain places on the globe. Energy is that thing within you that lets you shift any of these phenomena anywhere you want. If you want to shift your sexual attraction into healing your friend on the hospital bed, that's energy. You have made yourself, you've taken this part that is unnameable, uh, that is not in any way sort of precisely scientifically measured, but you know it's there, and you make it, you make it do what you want it to do. It's the underlying force of all magic. Now, the vampire myth, which is actually a pretty new myth as far as myths go. It really only goes back to the 19th century, and I'll talk about that later, is all about, um, as a myth, it has a lot of useful qualities. Now, a myth is any story that an enlightened mind can use to change themselves. And a myth does not have to be from scripture. A myth does not have to be handed down from the ancients. Myths can be created every day. Right. Uh, there was an Italian Renaissance philosopher, Gamsbieta Vico, who said, truth is what is made because mm-hmm. artists create a level of truth. But the, the archetype of the vampire has so many things that are so useful for someone wanting to do transformation. Number one, the vampire is detached from the world. If you literally live for centuries and you're sleeping during the day in your coffin, you're not concerned about current politics. That's for sure. You don't necessarily <laughs> need to get up and see it and say, what stupid thing did whatever stupid world leader tweet today? You don't need to do that. <laughs> 
But you do right. have some needs, and the two needs you do have. One, you need to take care of the planet, because if you're going to be around for hundreds of years, then it does matter how much mercury is going in the water or what's happening in terms of global warning, warming. You have to be sure you're in a society that lets you move as freely as possible. So you have a built-in desire to be in certain form, fight against certain forms of regulation and control. And you have to have an absolute hatred and distrust against anything that steals the energy you want to have. Mm. Because human beings in the modern world have a million things stealing their energy all the time. And Give it's us surprising some examples, that if you would, of that, because that. that's a very important statement you just made. So what are the things that we're letting steal our energy today? Okay, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, and, 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 and I will point this out, that, that we, we didn't rehearse this ahead of time. Um, no. <laughs> in your brain right now, some of the real estate of your brain, right there in your skull, belongs to the McDonald's Corporation. Because I could walk up to you and go, da-da-da-da-da, and make you think of McDonald's. Right. Wow. That's a six-note invocation, or five-note invocation, and I can control your brain, even though I'm sitting in Austin, Texas. Now, that's a great drain on your energy. There's huge drains on our energy from the emotional point of view. And as our country uh, has gotten particularly divisive and angry and separated, you can draw large amounts of emotion. And you can use it to make people do all kinds of crazy things. Now, we may notice the more gross and terrible things, uh, violence against certain groups or ridiculous levels of destruction in our society. But it's very, very big when, in fact, your energy is there to be used by other people. Um, yeah, that's very concerning. But people don't recognize it. People don't know this. People do not know it. I'll, I'll tell you a story from Austin, the city of Austin's politics about how energy is used. Some years ago, the city of Austin asked its voters, would you like to buy a convention center? of the voters said no. They asked the next year, would you like us to build a convention center? 90% of the voters said no. They asked a third year, would you like us to build a convention center? 90% of the voters said no. So at this point in the story, do you think the voters want a convention center? No. No, okay, but really good, right? You can can do do, do simple math. 90% don't want it. That's pretty big. They let that's, the issue big fallow for a year. Then they ask this on the ballot. When we build the convention center, do you want it in the, you know, they didn't quite phrase it this way, but this is what the question was. Do you want it in the predominantly white downtown or the predominantly brown East Austin? <laughs> this so the convention a center became issue. a foregone conclusion in that question. You know, everybody, yeah, they just started with when we build it. Now, there's ways you can get things taken off the ballot, but that's complicated, and most voters don't know that. Right. Everybody had an opinion. 
Uh, the nice folks over in East Austin said, well, you should build it here. We're a huge part of Austin's economy, and besides, the restaurants are better. The people downtown was like, are you kidding? We have the biggest restaurants. It should be here. Everybody had an opinion. There were signs in front of everybody's house. You would hear it discussed everywhere from a church to a bar to in line to a shopping center. And when they had that election, it was one of the best attended urban elections ever. Downtown won by a small amount. And everyone went away saying, the city listened to us. Wow. That is a use of it, someone else's energy. That is a and this great, is done all the great time. story. Oh, my goodness. You see, I'm so glad you shared that with our audience and with me because that really illustrates it totally, how people get manipulated. They don't even know it. They just start participating in it. And it didn't take much to change that question around so that people would start participating and thinking it was in their best interest. And, of course, the really great thing about it was what the city wanted was a convention center, and they didn't care if it was in downtown or East Austin. Yeah, they, they didn't. They got what they wanted. Yeah. Wow. Ah. So that would be Just an example of incredible. people's energy is used by other groups. And, you know, and I'm not necessarily talking, you know, I'm just talking about the Illuminati or you know, secret demonic figures hidden in the city. No, I mean, it's, you're, other humans are doing this. And they're doing it uh, just to make a buck. But there's another way we lose energy. Uh, There's a term called psychic vampire. Mm -hmm. Now, that term got a lot of press in about 1972 when Anton LaVey wrote the Satanic Bible. And he says, look, I invented that. Well, he didn't invent the term. Uh, Actually, Diane Fortune did that a lot earlier, but... Anton knew it was an important idea, so he wanted it to be associated with him. There are people around you, usually very damaged people, very humorless people, that when you're in their presence, you feel your energy being drained away. This is not any way like the archetypical fictional vampire. They're not glamorous. They're not nice looking. You're not thinking, wow, I wish I could take them to bed. In fact, they usually whine about their bad conditions, and you feel bad. <laughs> oh. The problem is the energy they're taking, because they're taking it, because you're not wanting to give it. That's a, that's a theft. It's not also really helping them out. They don't visit with you, make you feel bad, and then go off and feel really excellent. So there are a lot of psychic vampires. And that's one of the reasons why in my book I went with um, Dr. Polidori's spelling, vampire with a Y as opposed to vampire with an I. And these lower class um, baser creatures that are psychic vampires, I give quite a few good ways to defend yourself from them. So the first big message of the book is don't lose your energy. The second message is you can take energy from other people and it's best if they're wanting to give it to you. Hmm. So it's not that you're stealing it. It's they actually prefer to give you some of their energy? Why? Ah, it's all a matter of exchange. And I'll talk a little bit about what exchange means. You can have interactions with people, and you know who these people are in your life. You could make the list as soon as we stop talking today that when you interact with them, 
both you and they go away with more energy. You know, it's a win-win for both people. Well, that's different. It's a win-win for both people. That, on a very basic level, is the vampiric exchange. Now, the place we see it usually the clearest is in a um, strongly enthusiastic sexual relationship. Because sex, of all the magical things humans do, that's one of the easiest because it's tied up with some very basic parts of who we are. Mm -hmm. But you can also see it by the exchange you have between, uh, let's say, an audience and a good comedian. Oh, okay. Right, think think of that totally delightful uh, man we all deeply miss, Robin Williams, a man who had depression eating at him uh, worse than a great white shark. Mm. If you ever saw him in front of an audience, he sucked the energy out of him. You could probably see it going through the air. But what did he do with it? He immediately gave it back to them and say, here are some programs for your brain, and if you run them, you're going to be really, really happy really quickly. Everybody walked away feeling empowered. Including maybe you're an introvert. Maybe you don't want to go where there are a lot of people. There are other ways, other places. There are natural sources. Um, Now, there are some sources that are easier to tap into because of their geometric configuration, and I give you some, some clues how to find that. Are there some places you can just find because they're really pretty, or you can find them because someone has held them as a sacred site for a really long time? So and in those cases, maybe the exchange you have going on isn't even with people alive today. Maybe you're having exchange going on with people that were from the late um, Stone Age or early Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this can be across any dimension, really. Yeah. And because in your and book, is, one of the things I was struck with, Don, is that it it reminded me so much of the Carlos Castaneda material, and you know Don Juan Matus, and and also the same premise that you need to be separated. You can't be totally in this world. You have to step back from it, and then going from there. And some of it is very similar to what you're writing about with the Order of the Vampire. Well, I, I uh, in fact, in one of the books uh, that I recommend is a uh, privately published book called Getting Costumeda uh, by a guy named Peter Luce, which is a wonderful summary of um, all the Costumeda books as well as saying here's all the places he apparently deliberately contradicts himself and maybe offer some reasons as to why he does that. Uh, Wonderful little book. But the Costineta mythology entered our world at a really particular time. It entered in that period of the late 60s, early 70s, which there was pretty clearly some kind of aeonic shift going on. Mm -hmm. There was. No, that's really true. I mean, we were, I think, at that point, there, our culture was looking for something like that, and it showed up, and Carlos Castaneda, with all his flaws, and he had many, uh, still was able to capture the imagination of so many people and 
have them really consider other realities as something real. So it was it was a great time. I know I remember every time his book came, the next book came out, it ran right to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. It was amazingly popular. But that said, I mean, there's a shamanic uh, energy that also is very much a correlation to the Order of the Vampire, right? Because, again, it's it, it a is. very think, different way of I think there is sort of a neo-shamanism the there. Say that again? I missed what you were saying. I think I that, that the Order of the Vampire is sort of neo-shamanic. Um, Okay. But you know we don't claim nor try to appropriate any you know any living tradition. You know right. we don't say we you know we we have stolen this or we have this uh, unique insight. And and, uh, and, and I think the thing, okay. Yes, it's very unique. I mean, but what I'm, I'm the reason I'm talking about it this way is because I think it's important for people to have some kind of reference point that this isn't so far out, mm-hmm. and this isn't. It certainly isn't evil. It certainly isn't so tied up with the old folklore that we grew up with. This is something very different. And now, in your book, you also talk about the people when you met them that were in the order and how charismatic they were. And that's something that fits very well with the folklore of vampires that we grew up with, right? They were very charismatic. Yeah. They were very attractive, that they were compelling, those kinds of personality traits, right? Well, in fact, those are very important. Now, the thing is, one can develop these. You know, it's not just necessarily based on... Uh, whatever your genetics happen to happen to uh, hand you, the vampire must be the master of attention. Oh, and that okay. means they have to either be highly visible or when they want to be invisible. Now, of course, Bram Stoker, when he um, created the novel, he just had Dracula have that power, right? He could like, turn into a mist. But it's very important always to be knowing what you want to do with the energy of a room. Do you want it coming towards you, or do you want it ignoring you? And then if you want it coming towards you, you have some really specific things you can choose. How you dress, how you smell, obviously those are simple. Everyone has some notion of that. But most particularly, how you use your eyes. Your gaze can hold people and make them say, hey, I really want to pay attention to you. Hmm. So this is th- these are things that were taught in the Order of the Vampire. These are some of the, yeah, some of these are the Order of Vampire's um, technology. Some of these things are my own invention um, because once you, once you develop the particular aesthetic, once you've developed the philosophy, you can find the things that fit in. And it's in the nature of vampiric energy to go out, grab things, and bring them to you or bring you to the right place. And this can be useful either as just a survival technique because you're walking through dangerous streets of the city you live in, but it's also a technique 
that can just lead you to the most surprising and interesting things. Once the vampire realizes the world is full of dangers and wonders, they leave the world that the other citizens around them live in. I don't mean the sense of, you know, they're talking to elves or something. I just mm-hmm. mean they constantly meet more interesting people. They constantly have more interesting phenomena. They constantly find more interesting artifacts. Well, it sounds exciting, and it, it sounds very empowering in what you're describing. I mean, just just that statement you made about the energy in the room and having it come towards you where that's your charismatic self or you want it away from you, your invisible self, and that you can direct that. You make a choice about how you're going to direct that energy, but you've got to have a sense of how to do that. It's like a wave, isn't it? A wave of very powerful energy. Well, the nice thing about this, of course, I give some specific techniques, but the nicest thing about this is beginning tomorrow, you can start developing this because the teacher is all around you. Hmm. As they say of yogis, yogins at a certain level, the world is my guru. For example, yeah. if just tomorrow night, before you go to sleep, you spend a little time doing an energy inventory of the day. When did I feel good? When did I feel bad? How do these different people make me feel? You will begin training your body and soul complex to become sensitive to energy. Every day is an experiment, and you will get feedback immediately. You know, and you will discover what works, and you'll discover what works for you. Uh, there's a vampire subculture in the U.S., and it's somewhat unfortunate in that they all use exactly the same aesthetic. You know, all the women have like the black um, mesh hose or you have big silver jewelry that looks like a knife. No, you don't want to just look like someone else. Find what yeah. works for you. Find what your secret is. And the secret that you may have for drawing an energy might be something as odd as a pair of magic bowling shoes. Okay, <laughs> works for you. You find it, and it works for you all the time. That's great. So it is really about the individual. And it's, it is also about our personal freedom and being able to recognize and work with energy as a real thing. And none of that's making a huge leap because you already know in your day-to-day experience that you experience energy and you experience energy in your interactions with people. And I don't offer a particular explanation. I don't, I don't have kind of some something saying, well, it's the magnetic field of the body or it's based on something cultural. All that are things to be explored, but they're not necessary for you to explore them. What you have to deal with is the pragmatic daily experiences that you have. And those are much more valuable than what you're going to get, say, out of a book or a teacher or whatever. Once you start paying attention to your own life and pay frequent attention to your own life, you'll find the right books, you'll find the right teachers because you will have awakened in yourself 
this vampiric energy that says, I am going to go and choose the correct experiences and people out of the unmanifest and bring them to you. That's easy. That sounds great. So there's a lot to be said for paying attention. So <laughs> we can learn this way. And it's a, it's a very exciting, I think, way to look at the world, what you're presenting. It makes a lot of sense. And how do we want to work with our energy? Do we want to give it away all the time? I think we give it away a lot. I mean, just your example about McDonald's has me so concerned. So... <laughs> You know, how many corporations are taking up that real estate in their brains? And, and the thing is, they're, 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 you, here's the nice thing. I'll, I'll give you a nice truth to deal with the scary truth. Any method they use, you can use. One of the places you can learn magic is going to Vegas and see how a casino is laid out. You will learn more about human psychology if you walk around a casino and manage to remember yourself and your purpose for about five minutes than you can in 20 books. Because these, those are wonderful, amazing machines with one purpose, which is to hypnotize you to spend money. Yes. And they're so beautifully and overwhelmingly designed. I, I love walking through casinos in Vegas because you start noticing things like, of course, everything is flashing. Yeah, And right. one of the things you can discover, there's good neuroscience for this. This isn't just some weird theory I have. If you're in the presence of a flashing light, that little three-and-a-half-pound meatloaf you call your brain will synchronize with it. Oh, my God. So it causes a trance state, and we know a lot about various trance states. You get that about six, seven beats a second, you go into a theta state. Now, most people have to go through yoga training for years to learn how to get to a theta state. Nope. You can also just get it walking across a casino. And you'll notice you can never walk in a long line at a casino. It's very disorienting, having to change your physical orientation. Every time we change an orientation in our bodies, like let's say I'm walking into a new room, there's what's called a liminality event in your brain that the brain resets. Mm -hmm. Really, really useful when we were hunter-gatherers on the grasslands of Africa. Worked great then. Because then if you stepped in front of a tree, you know to look around for a lion. It's really important. Unfortunately now, since we live much longer than we did over the grasslands of Africa, you have a lot of old farts like me that have that situation of walking into a room, has a liminal event, and I think, why did I come in here? <laughs> what was I supposed to do? All right. <laughs> in, Vegas, in Vegas, they make you do that. So you have your liminal event, you're turning, you're physically working with your body, and what's then presented to your eyes? Oh, a lot more slot machines. I must yeah. have come over here to play the slots. Huh, amazing. Amazing. But yeah. anything we're like that. We're at their mercy like the if we don't know about these mm-hmm. things. Yeah, yeah the, the, the best thing for anyone who wants to practice vampiric magic is to spend um, a big part of their reading just in current neuroscience. 
how does the brain work? How does the brain body interface work? Uh, how does the brain um, filter this thing called the mind? Um, and then mix that in huge heaping quantities with what you really like in vampire films and fiction and a few ritual magic techniques. And then you come up with your own blend. Mm-hmm. Well, in the mythology of, of vampires, and of course, Dracula, big name in vampires, there was always that element of being able to compel other people to do what you wanted them to do. Uh, that, that was big. And it was also big in Vampire Diaries. It was big in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That that was a running theme. Now, how does that compare to what you're talking about with using energy to draw to you or away from you or direct it in a certain way? Is it the same kind of thing? Well, it absolutely is. And then this leads to, of course, the question of ethics. If you're going to say... I literally want to become more powerful than my fellow human beings around me. You absolutely have to ask yourself, what am I going to do with that power? Mm-hmm. And what are my ethical boundaries of that power? Now, as a Setian, remember the Temple of Set, which is a left-hand path group, we think the most important thing is becoming an immortal, permanent, stable self. So our ethics say to us, we can do a lot of things, except we cannot dishonor the very principle we work for. I must never ethically interfere with your becoming. So that would mean, let's say, for example, um, if your girlfriend's too young, you shouldn't be taking advantage of her because you're interfering with her becoming. Okay. But that's a fairly high level of ethical decision. A lot of people can't make very high level ethical decisions. If you're not sure of that, watch the evening news and you're like, oh, wow, we're a terrible species. <laughs> so yeah. you have sure. to choose as the power comes in, how do you let it inform you? What are your goals with it? Now, one thing that's very important to the vampire is the life principle, life force itself. Well, in some ways, of course, that can be experienced through, through sex magic or through all these things that just make us feel good. But ultimately, it comes down to you will become very, very interested in animal rights. It's a very interesting thing to watch an initiate because I see this you know twenty year old initiate and their understanding is wow you know I'm having a lot of sex and this is great and I look at them when they're like a forty year old initiate and they're like I am so concerned about X Y Z species because they are such a symbol of my becoming um, hmm. the founder of the Order of the Vampire Lilith Aquino has become one of the major advocates for protecting wolves in America. Oh, good for her. It's wonderful. And it's really interesting because, like, when I first knew her, I knew her as this incredibly glamorous woman. Um, You know, she was formerly a model in New York, and now most of the pictures I have of her is her working at wolf sanctuaries. Um, You know, and it's very... 
I got my sleeves rolled up and I'm, you know, cleaning up or I'm holding this, you know, I'm holding this animal when it's making its transition over to the rainbow bridge. Mm. And it was a simple thing because as she increased in power, she wanted to specialize in, she was drawn to the life force. And then eventually she even uttered what we call an aeonic word, a magical word, arcte, which is about the relationship between humans and animals. Mm-hmm. But the ethics has to come from an interior place if you're going to be self-empowering. I had someone oh, ask me recently. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. It makes that makes a lot of sense because you know what's the point of all these rules that we're supposed to follow? It's you know these laws, these rules that they don't seem to really make us better people, and having it come from the inside, having an internal moral compass that guides us and teaches us, okay, this is what what we want to see you do, or this is helpful. Just like this woman who devotes her life to saving wolves. That's just an amazing path. It's a beautiful path. It's a worthy path. So being able to do that in your life is, is a great thing and a great choice that she made. But so many people, I, I know exactly why, where you're going with this, so many people don't have an internal moral compass. And there's a lot of greed that seems to run through our veins as a species rather than um, seeing things for what they really are. This is our planet. We're supposed to be taking care of it. This, these are animals that may need us, and we need to take care of them. But somehow we're not seeing that as a species. That's why in most conventional religions, they just say desire is bad. You know, Christianity will tell you lust is bad, just just uh, across the board, lust is bad. Because most people, when they have these powerful forces in them, don't know why they've invoked them and what they're for. Desire is the fulcrum for change. And that means you accept a lot of parts of desire, the sweetness of getting your desire fulfilled, absolutely, but also the suffering and hardship getting there. Those things make this great fire that you purify the self in. But the problem with any kind of empowerment, if you're going to let anyone have an actual occult secret, is, of course, they might misuse it. In fact, every initiate throughout his or her path will do things that later are like, wow, that's not what I wanted to do. But that's the same thing for any aspect of human life. You have to watch also what are your desires leading to? What's your ultimate picture of yourself? And it needs to be something that's not easily dismissed. Um, let's take there, there are people in the world that all they live for is money. You know some of these people. Mm-hmm. That's like their one concern. Well, hey, I like money. Money is good. You know, if some of your listeners have too much money, uh, I can give them an, you know my address. They can send it to me. <laughs> Money's good. But if all you lived for your entire life was money, at the moment of your death, what of the little soul that you have, where is it going to go and what's it going to do? What haunt of ha- haunt of bank vault? Yeah. You know, wander around Wall Street and, you know, utter um, investment advice to living people. 
So well, we death have is to a think. great, great equalizer. I mean, it, it really is something that you have to look at and go, wow, I'm not taking it with me. So what is coming with me? Yeah, what am I becoming? What, if I were to be the spirit of something, the the demon or angel of something, what would it be? And, of course, the vampire gives us a clue in the form of the myth. It needs to be something that will be perpetual in the world. Uh, it would, you know, not good good to be, say, I am the spirit of uh, gasoline cars. Well, wow, in about 20 years, you're done now. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you say, I will collect automobiles because I am the spirit of movement and freedom of the road, and that's the most important thing for me, whatever mankind goes to, you're going with it. Now, maybe it will be, you know, Buck Rogers jetpacks or something, but you're going to still be identifying with that. That's why it's really yeah. nice to identify with something like justice. Yeah, something more broad. Yeah, I mean, that's, there, there's a great key. And then you can also, you can then decide, when is it okay for me to be ruthless? When is it important for me to be sweet? What does it mean for me to be fair? The deep questions, the ethical questions that every human should have become more important if you have more power to play with. Yes, it it should reveal itself. Now, why do you think, Don, people are so uh, so bereft of <laughs> of understanding any of this? I mean, how? Why are we so much in the dark? What's created this? Well, we there, don't there understand are several these principles. Go ahead. I can do, I can tell you two that are very simple. Number one, uh, awareness takes energy and training. And if you want to see how that works, set yourself a simple task like, uh, I'm going to go into Walmart and buy a quart of milk and come out. And while I go in, all I'm going to think about is um, the nature of of truth. Two things I want to think about, truth and a quart of milk. See how far you get into Walmart when you discover, I'm thinking of neither the milk nor uh, truth it takes energy that takes a lot of training in itself but the real thing and i talk about this a lot in the book is what i call the social parasite you see like i mentioned earlier there are eight billion people on this planet and they have to be controlled now they could be controlled by having eight billion policemen that follow them around with a cattle prod and punch them in the butt when they do something stupid That's not really very practical. So the most practical thing is society teaches us a set of behaviors and thoughts and customs that make us work together without even thinking it. I call that the social parasite. It lives in all of us. Now, it is not evil. In fact, most of the time it probably saves our lives. But here's some examples of how you can see the social parasite. I'll give you a couple of examples. Here's one. The next time you're having a really shitty day, you're sick, your friends are sick, maybe you just broke up with your lover. I mean, a really terrible day. 
and some other human walks up to you and says, how are you doing? The first thing you'll say is, I'm fine. And you may even be startled to wonder how the hell that came out of your mouth. That's because you've (laughs) been trained to think that way. That's the social Mm -hmm. parasite. Mm -hmm. Now, most of the decisions a social parasite makes for me are good, like, do I run a red light? No. I don't stop and say, hey, maybe I can get away with it this time. I trust the social parasite on that one. You want to know one really sneaky? I'll tell you a sneaky thing the social parasite does to you. Yeah, let me hear it. You, okay, I'm going to assume, although I've never met you, never had a political discussion with you, you're pretty aware of the fact that women have the same rights as men, right? Basic ethics. Yes. All right, try this. The next time you meet a couple, a man and a woman couple, and don't do, this, don't do this ostentatiously. Don't make a gesture if you do it just as naturally as possible. Don't ask the man what he does for a living first. Ask the woman what she does for a living first. <laughs> okay. Now, that's not evil, right? Already. That's not rude. That's not over no. the top. Both partners that you speak to will begin to talk about the man first because that's what the social parasite says us to, tells us to do. That's right. Even if the woman makes, you know, a hell of a lot more money or is a more, you know, economically important partner, we're, ter- we're taught to turn to the guy first. That's even true. if we're a feminist, even if we uh, are an advocate for this cause, because the social parasite has a lot of things we do. We know how to dress. We know when we show up at a party, depending on our culture. You know, I grew up around a lot of Germans. I am always on time. I am deeply embarrassed if I'm not on time. I will, I will apologize to people if I am five minutes late because part of my social parasite was trained to do that. And is that the way? Is that a great truth? No. Not in any way. Heck, there's some places that social parasite never learns that. In Hawaii, if you tell someone, I'm going to be at your house at 8 o'clock tomorrow night, and you happen to be at their house at 8 o'clock tomorrow night, it's just a weird coincidence. (laughs) So it's not a part of that culture (laughs) to be on time. This is not part of that culture, yeah. Um, Learning to deal with that, that's a big tap on energy. Because a lot of our decisions have already been made for us. Learning that your decisions don't have to be made for you. And you'll start noticing it also when you think about, start doing your energy inventory every night. Because one of the first things you'll encounter is, hey, why did I agree to do this thing when so-and-so asked? It was a really bad idea for me to agree to that. Mm -hmm. And immediately your body tells you, "Mm mm-mm. Shouldn't have done that. But yeah, the social the parasite signal. says, yes, you must do it. So separating that out so that you understand it and you catch yourself before you do it again, I would imagine that that's a great way to have more energy. It gives you a great deal more energy. And when you start doing this sort of all the time, the energy itself in your system will begin to give you clues. 
Now, you don't want to hoard energy. Energy is not great and static. There's some places you should put it. And I'll tell you the places you should put your energy. Number one, of course, put it toward your own health and the health of people around you. You know, and tonight you're going to be doing that with your friend that is in the hospital. Yes, with DK. You have an abundance of energy. Put some of it to her. Now, the technology you use doesn't interest me because maybe for you it's prayers or prayer beads or visualization or saying a mantra or just looking at her picture lovingly for a while. Mm-hmm. You can find the technique. But you can do that. You can make that gift of energy. And the main reason that will work for you is you have a direct link with her. I mean, I'm going to think good thoughts about her tonight, but I can't do near as much as you just because I don't have that direct link. Another great place to put energy, put it into objects you've chosen, into particular talismans. Maybe it's a ring you always wear. Maybe it's a statue in your home. Just when you feel particularly energetic, just touch it. Just think, I want to leave some of my energy there. Try that for a month. Then one day when you're really needing an energy, some energy, go pick it up and say, hey, I need that stuff back now. And it will happen. Oh. Now you can, huh. you, can get, you can get better results if you start learning mythology and magic words and mantras that are evocative to you. But that evocativeness is not the power in the word. It's not in the syllable. It's in what you believe it to be. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. That, these and are wonderful tips and, you want to and put how to work with this. Mm-hmm. And it's all in your book. I just want to tell everybody the name of the book again is Energy Magic of the Vampire. Wonderful, wonderful guidance on all of this. So I didn't mean to interrupt because you're giving us great tips, so go ahead. <laughs> um, no, I, I, uh, as, you, as you can tell, my uh, my profession for years has been a teacher, so I'm, I, I sadly lapse into, into lecture mode quite often. Hey, um, it, this yeah. is great, Don, because these are things that are usable. We can integrate these things into our lives immediately. They're easy to do. Well, I, I've set up the book. So the first part of it is here are some very basic techniques. And I say before you go to the second part, before you go to the um, initiatory part that's very ceremonial, see if you like this stuff. See if it works for you. See if it makes you happy. See if you're getting results. Because if you're not, you don't need to go on. If you are, then I do offer a nine-month initiation that that kind of supercharges all of these ideas. Now, how do people get involved with that? How do we do that? How do they do the nine-month initiation? Yeah. Um, I tell them what they need to do. The, The things they do, of course, is I will talk about development of certain ideas historically and I have picked nine individuals um, in recent magical history Uh, there are a variety of people they're black and white gay and straight male and female I mean there's there's a huge selection of people but I talk about how certain ideas have come into being And then I give you the ritual techniques these people developed so you can try them. I give you a ritual way to resonate with them. And I give you all their philosophy condensed to a word. We know that for some magicians really well, right? Like we know the word thalima. 
or Alistair Crowley. Mm-hmm. But while I do that, I also ask the person who reads the book some, some psychological questions about their past and some philosophical things they may think of. I don't give them the answers. But I know, having been a teacher for all of my adult life, if you ask certain questions in a row, you can lead people to certain answers. I use the, you know, the basic Socratic method. So then if people decide to do the nine-month initiation, it will produce profound results. If yeah, they decide, hey, imagine. if I don't like this, because some people don't like energy magic. Some people get this and say, hey, that, that weirds me out. Or I didn't like the fact even that it worked. Um, <laughs> because the first time your magic works, that's really much more disturbing than you may think. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and there's that place where you need to take responsibility for your magic. So if you're going to create something with intention, yes. So I can see where people might get a little disturbed by that. <laughs> Now, how can people do this? Can they do this online with you? Do they have to be there in person? How do they? How do you arrange this? Well, I've set this particular book up that it, it can be all solo practitioner, uh, or you could do it in a you know a small group you put together, or um, a sexually bonded pair could certainly do this really well. Because mm-hmm. the book is not, um, you know, it's not making a pitch for the Temple of Sex. It's like, hey. You've read this. This is cool. Come join us. I know some of the smarter people will because they'll say, hey, I want to go to the university that this guy teaches at, and I'll get enough people that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't right now have any intention of doing workshops and classes or have any people having need of me. I may do some of that in the future because, like I said before, I like money. Money is good. But the main thing the vampire needs to do is rely almost entirely on herself. Mm-hmm. Whatever powers she can develop are the important powers. Whatever powers she wants to develop are the powers she should develop. What the book will help people with is knowing what do you really want because that's something most people don't know. And then once you know it, the book will tell you, here's how you'll get energy to help you find that. So I highly recommend your book. I think it's it's a terrific book, and it's so well written. So that's one aspect of learning these techniques and practicing them. But the nine-month initiation, my question is, how does that take place? Uh, you take a site that's your home, you make one area sacred. You decide to do um, your energy inventory every night. You give honest, authentic answers to the questions I put out there. And there's a few things I have people buy in terms of magical tools, but I really prefer to have what's called the open hand technique. Because wherever you go, you already have the biggest magical tool in the world, which is your body. And it's more important to make that sacred and empowered than to have a sacred cup or a sacred knife or a sacred bell. Absolutely. So largely it's, I would say it's primarily simple self-study. So Uh, self, 
self-study, but you give direction to these people that are doing the initiation, right? Oh, yeah. You know, I say here at the beginning, at the beginning of this month, you're going to want to do this right. Here's things you want to think about this month. Here's some history. You may want to go research this month. Here's a couple of techniques to try. And then at the end, if you kept up with this, now I highly recommend people diary, you know, use journaling a lot, but I don't make that an absolute must-do rule because some people can't journal. To some yeah. people, that's like asking them to fly. But I do say <laughs> you have to spend time every night going over the day you had, planning your next day, and keeping in mind whatever the theme of the month is. It sounds very, very practical and very doable and also very exciting. Whether people get your book and do it on their own or they sign up to do a nine-month initiation process with you, it all sounds very positive. And like you said, you know, it's not for everybody, but certainly... Yeah, I mean, I, being... I, really, I really try with the book to let people say, do this, this is what a result looks like, um, and if you can want this, you can continue. Yeah, they don't, they don't need to sign up with me for the nine-month initiation. I've given them the guidance they need. I just help them access with certain guided questions ideas they've either thought about in their lives or maybe they've never thought about and don't know why I've never thought about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It just Right now in our our society, I mean, you're watching this, I'm sure, quite closely. And I'm just seeing so many choices in front of us as to how we're going to responsibly manage our own thoughts, our own energy, what we're going to buy into, what we're going to take as gospel, which may or may not be. I mean, there's, there's a lot of subterfuge. There's, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of information that's guaranteed to program us a certain way. What are you thinking about all of this? Well, it's mankind as a whole is about to enter a new step. Um, there's a very great... Uh, French philosopher who began, like yourself, in sociology, named Jean Gebser, who divided the ages of mankind in this fashion. He says first it was a period of uh, survival. That was like the, the number one thing. He said the second way mankind interacted with the world was magical. Uh, you're directly linked to the, to the world. The boundaries between self and not self are not particularly clear and you can learn through correspondence. Magical is very powerful, as we all know, but it was largely replaced by a mystic approach. Right about, oh, say 500 B.C., pretty much all over the globe, religion and philosophy became really important. With myth, you had one story, one God, one way to do things. All right, about the time of the Enlightenment, about 300 years ago, we entered the rational stage. The best way to do things is with objective science. Well, man, objective science is great. They produce all these things, but it has limitations too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't okay. give happiness. It doesn't help people find a moral compass. And now he says mankind is beginning to become integral, meaning we can use all the parts together, and we need to know when to use which part. And this is 
terribly important right now because the rational part of ourselves, the scientific part of ourselves, has given so much power. We have crazy amounts of power. I mean, I walk around carrying a device in my pocket that has more computing power than NASA had when they put a man on the moon. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. It, It enables me with as much as maybe 10 clicks to have all of mankind's knowledge in a moment. Rare books that were hidden for years grimoires of sorcerers that there was just one copy of. I can get that on my phone. Or latest scientific breakthroughs. What do people do with that? They watch porn, put out pictures of cats, and argue with strangers about politics they don't understand. (laughs) That happens a lot, yes. Yet we have that power. I have, you know, nice car. I could get in my car, which is in good shape, and I know how to drive, and I can go anywhere in the United States just within hours. Or I can get on a plane and go anywhere on the world. I have, the, I have a, letter, a, le- a amount of power that is amazing to my ancestors' ancestors. Man, they would look at me and say, man, you have sugar anytime you want it. You can make your house cooler. Right. You're going to live to 90 years old. Wow, we have far surpassed anything that our ancestors would have dreamed of. And what do we do? Do we become happy, wise? No, because we're not using the techniques they used to become happy and wise in a 30-year lifespan. But we know what the techniques are. Now is the time for these things to be integrated, and the person who makes these integral steps will be good, rational thinkers, people with access to science, but who can also call up the most primal parts of the self. And one of the best ways I think to do that is through the myth of the vampire because it's not tied to a large mythology. It's not tied to a church with a lot of money, and it has a large sense of fun in it. Yeah, it it sounds really, really interesting, and it's so different than what people think of when they hear the word vampire. It's so mm-hmm. different than that. I mean, because most people think of a blood cult, you know, that there are people today that are feeding off of each other or raiding blood banks or whatever, and that's not what this is about, even though there's a lot of uh, folklore around that. That's not what this is. You know, we, we use the imagery, but we're not gross. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Now, why is blood so important? The symbol of blood is what we talked about at the beginning of the show. Why is that so important and so sacred? Well, symbolically, we become aware of the blood in our body when we're either very scared or we're very aroused. You know, there's a certain kind of wonderful throbbing of certain body parts when you're extremely aroused or there's a certain throbbing of your heart when you think, oh, my God, there's someone in my house tonight. That doesn't blood belong there? Yeah, that would make indicator. my heart <laughs> yeah, Blood's the indicator of being intensely alive, either for survival, for um, sexual pleasure, 
And blood is always moving. It is not stationary. It carries things into our body. We take and also carries things out of our body. So it's a very, very powerful symbol. There's also apparently, um, and I didn't not know this before I'd written the book, because you always find out things are so cool as soon as that manuscript is off. Uh, some Japanese researchers have discovered blood is the method by which the body creates its electromagnetic field. Oh, which that's is important. A, a, a really surprising thing, but I did not uh, did not come across that research. Um, Although, if you're interested, there is a great book on that called The Electromagnetic Brain by uh, Dr. Shelley Joy, mm. uh, who, whom I now have been corresponding with to see if she can uh, help me with certain ideas that I have. But yeah, that's one reason that's... why blood is so important. Now, of course, in the book Dracula, Bram Stoker quotes the book of Deuteronomy that says, the blood is the life. And if you go look that up in Deuteronomy, uh, the Hebrew God says, the blood is the most important part of the sacrifice. Don't spill a drop. Give all of it to me. Which is kind of a bloodthirsty remark. Yeah, sounds it. <laughs> then in the New Covenant, uh, you see the figure of Jesus saying, I am sharing my blood. So there's all of this cultural material deeply wrapped up with this stuff. But believe me, the place for your blood is inside your body. Its proper vessel is your heart. And if you think of the heart as an active vessel and you consecrate it just as another magician would say, consecrate a cup for a ritual, do it whatever way you want, whatever appeals to you, you will get really good results really quickly because any time then that heart is beating fast, is certainly evoking those energies You've directed it to evoke. Mm-hmm. Now, I've just gotten a lot of text questions where people are asking, um, what do you think about those blood cults? What's your opinion of what they're doing and how they're doing it? I, I, I have a very dim view of any cult that actually lets blood or causes people to drink blood for a variety of reasons. Number one, it's incredibly a huge health risk. Yes. Um, there were some uh, vampire cults before the, you know, the age of HIV when, you know, drinking blood probably wouldn't kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's kind of just sort of gross. And <laughs> one thing that a lot of people don't know is blood is a natural emetic, meaning if you actually drink a large amount of someone else's blood, you will totally and absolutely puke your guts out. Not a great moment for ritual. (laughs) I I think some people like to play with the vampiric archetype when they're going through periods of self-change. That's one reason why we all love vampires when we're teenagers. Yes, exactly. Because we can look at that archetype and like, oh, look how strange they are from society. Look how no one understands them. Look how good-looking they are. And we think, in some ways, that's me. Or I at least wish it was me. <laughs> and so yes. for some of these groups, like, people, go, people you know, dabble with that in a while and move on. And as long as they're not hurting anyone, that's okay. But I, I'm strongly against the actual letting, drinking, 
whatever odd thing you're doing with your blood. Yeah, I certainly understand that. Yeah, okay, well, that answers their question. Thank you. Well, and I think you just named why Buffy the Vampire Slayer was so successful, because it took that teenage angst and put it in a supernatural context uh, with all the extremes that go with it. And it, it was that's, I think, why it was so widely successful. It, it hit so many points of transformation and change and growing up and, and all of those things. And, again, you're bringing to us a whole other level of our, our own evolution if we're up for it, if we want to take responsibility and also find that internal moral compass so we don't abuse that power that we're given. Do you have any examples of people that have made kind of a bad decision once they've gotten the power that that they've been working with and attracting to themselves? Well, I mean, the, the, the you know, I could name some current politicians, but that would probably... Um vastly anger parts of your audience while other people would stand and <laughs> applaud. But um, a, a perfect example of someone using certain vampiric techniques that did not do it to improve himself would, of course, be Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Now, we have a very unfortunate view of Hitler that movies give us that he looks really tough and powerful and, and ruthless because that looks good in a movie. In reality, this guy was someone who was um, not greatly well-educated. He uh, had a lot of insecurity. But boy, could he get energy out of a crowd. Now, of course, the lowest common denominator for energy is hatred. Mm. You can get a group of people angry over nothing really quickly. And that's, that's what you eat. You know, I mean, there's a lot to that saying, you know, you are what you eat. Yeah. If that's the energy you're going to plug into you, you're not going to use that for self-development. It never right. occurred to Hitler on any day, I need to be a better person. Yes. But it did occur to him, wow, I really love these crowds. <laughs> yes, he did. That's a great you know, example. And I, I know there's a lot of nonsense things that Hitler was some kind of a cultist. You know, actually, he was a uh, very, very devout Christian. Uh, he just never considered anything he did as being a, a bad action. Like the day he decides to die is his worry, oh, my God, I have killed six million people. That was probably a mistake. No, his big worry was, I'm living in sin with Eva Braun. Quick, get me a priest so I can marry her. Oh, my goodness. That was his biggest moral concern that day. But you're not going to sell a lot of books saying, Hitler, strong Christian. That book will probably not sell well. (laughs) You can say, Hitler, you know, look at this. His, His lieutenant Himmler used some runes. It must be the runes. The runes are evil. Or the sword, uh, or whatever he had. Yes. Or the sword, or the, or, or the spear, right? The spear, excuse um, me, yes. Yes. Yeah, well, that's and, a great example of somebody who, who had power and and used it in a, in a horrible way. You know, I mean, he accomplished some things with the, with the power he was stirring up. They were amazing. The Germans were about, you know, three months away from a space program at the end of World War II. Yeah, they were pretty and, bad. And we got their space program. 
You know, we're like, yes. hey, you guys, come over here. Uh, if it hadn't been for the fact that Hitler couldn't get beyond his prejudices, I'll tell you a scary truth. Scientists in Germany who were smart enough to read Einstein's equations approached Hitler and said, we can build atomic bombs. Wow. Hitler said, I don't want any Jewish science. Huh. Wow. If they had put their money into that, we would all be speaking, you know, much more German and would be ending all our night's conversations with a certain phrase. <laughs> Fortunately, he was dumb enough not to you know, he was caught by his own prejudices. Yeah, so he, he never sure was. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Wow, that's just an amazing story. John, I hate to say this cuz we're almost out of time and this has been a remarkable discussion. I can't thank you enough. You've offered so much great information, so much wisdom. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Everybody, the name well, of Don's book is Energy Magic of the Vampire. Highly recommended. Please get this book. It's great. And you may want to walk this path because it's one of great power but also great responsibility. So, Don, I hope you'll come back and visit us again a lot sooner next time, please. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm working on uh, a really nice book right now for Inner Traditions that's going to be coming out next year. And so, you know, if you'll have me, I'll come talk about that. I would love uh, it. It's I, definitely going to be on I the love list. the show. I love being there. I love being here. I love being here. We have such a beautiful studio just coming down here. was lovely. But uh, just thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. You are just an amazing person, and this has been a pleasure. So everybody will be back next week with another great show, and until then, I will see you on the Blue Highway. Good night, everyone. Good night. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernatural Girls.